And their excuse was, you know, I work so hard. I work so hard. That's why I need to rest. And I said, well, you know, the rich people work harder than you. Uh, they're busier than you. And they still have time two to three days a week to go out during the week to build relationships with other success-minded people. With This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharm and we're speaking with best-selling author, motivational global speaker and property investor, Thomas Corley. Equipped with key insights on the power of habits, he gives us a front row seat to the behind-the-scenes practices of the rich. Plus, he reveals the story of a night in 2004 that inevitably led him to the path of becoming a brain expert. Known as Tom by friends and colleagues, Corley is not one to shy away from a good interview. Picking up my call from the United States, he gives us a bird's-eye view of all the metaphorical balls he's juggling these days. I'm a CPA. I'm a certified financial planner. I have various licenses and securities licenses. Uh, but uh, I guess what I'm known for is my rich habits research. I did a five-year study on the daily habits of rich people and poor people. And then uh, eventually wrote a book about it called Rich Habits, and uh, that evolved into what right now is about seven books. Uh, just kept coming out with another book called Wealth Academy in uh, China. So uh, my books uh, in China seem to be um, doing really well. They, uh, in fact, Michael Yardney and I had a great year on Rich Habits Poor Habits uh, in 2021. We sold a, a ton of books, so. Uh, I, I've been doing, you know, I have like four balls in the air and, and the, the fifth, fifth ball is really the speaking speaking engagements. I'm going to Memphis, Tennessee to speak at something called Freedom Fest. And so there's uh, all these speaking gigs that I get involved with. And then, of course, I continue to write. I write every day and my website, richhabits.net and, uh, you know, share, share my research as much as I can. With a clear purpose, Corley doesn't waste a second of his day as his schedule and busyness roughly depends on what season it is for him in his country. A typical day for me is getting up at around anywhere between quarter to five to 5.30. Uh, I usually do about an hour to an hour and a half of research and reading. Uh, this is rich habits research primarily but also my, uh, my tax and uh, financial planning research and technical reading and then uh, I'll head off to the gym. I'm usually there between 35 to 60 minutes a day and um, then I head to my office and uh, I, and I run a CPA firm. We've got, you know, about a thousand clients so it's it's a pretty busy place and uh, we've also got a, I'm a partner in a financial planning firm so I'm very busy with the financial planning and uh, I try and get most of my rich habits work done uh, in the morning and some a little bit during the day depending on like if I have a media interview or if I'm writing something from the media I contribute to CNBC Business Insider and some other outlets uh, and um, you know so I, I I usually finish up my day depending on the time of the year it's it's slow now so I'll finish up you know before five but uh, during tax season it's you know eight nine o'clock uh, so it's a busy, it's a good 12, 13 hour day during tax season, which lasts about 10 weeks. 
And then the rest of the rest of the year, I'm uh, I'm involved in in pretty much managing all four businesses. It's safe to say that Corley is an undeniable hard worker. With a tough character building childhood, he rose to every obstacle that stood in his way. So I grew up in New York City and uh, my, up until about the age of nine, we were uh, wealthy. My father had a very successful tool distribution business. He practically owned the whole Northeast of the United States. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, his sales partner uh, died and he had a heart attack. So my father ended up, uh, you know, uh, selling the business and he took the business back when they didn't make all the payments. And, and anyway, we, he almost went bankrupt. He, in, in today's world, it, it would, most people would go bankrupt, you know, but my father was that just not, he wasn't that type of person. So uh, he, he fought his way out of it. And um, we were poor. When I went to college, I had, I was a janitor. I had to pay. Uh, for college myself and the only way I could afford to do that was by being a janitor so I did that and then uh, when I got a job I went to graduate school at night uh, then I got my CPA I got my CFP and and uh, you know I have uh, three kids so uh, I've got all three of them I, I got them through college with very little student loans so I'm proud of that that's probably my biggest goal that I've achieved other than selling my books, trying to get my books out there. So uh, I've had uh, an interesting life, you know, it's pretty much everything was on my shoulders. And, and um, I did everything I could in some some cases had two jobs, three jobs, uh, just to make ends meet. And uh, now things are much better. And, uh, you know, life's a little bit easier. <laughs> Touching on the specific money challenges that he and his family experienced, Corley gives appreciation on still having a great education growing up when we were wealthy, my dad, um, we, we went to a, um, a very, the, the, probably the best school uh, in, in New York. It was one of the top schools. Uh, and uh, fortunately, when we hit the skids, when we became poor, my dad had raised so much money for the school. He was that kind of person that they let us all stay in school for free. Uh, and even uh, the high school that we, I went to, a private high school, they did the same thing because uh, he had raised so much money for them. So uh, while we were poor, I, I had probably the, a wealthy education, I guess you would say that. You know, I had the best education you, money can buy, uh, even though we didn't pay for it. <laughs> Difficult in the sense that I was going to school with a lot of uh, upper middle class, mostly upper middle class individuals. So and we weren't. So, so it was, that was a challenge. I mean, there were eight in my family, so eight brothers and sisters, yeah. I was in the uh, middle, Tyrone, right in the middle. Yeah, the number five child. Yeah, yeah. My dad had everything with the world on his shoulders, you know. And uh, these things happen in life; these unintended consequences. These, I guess you could call it bad luck. It happens, and you have to fight your way through it. Adversity visits everybody, whether you're rich or poor. Uh, it's the, the people that survive adversity, and uh, the ones who don't surrender to it. Uh, they always wind up. To, to some extent, successful. Looking in hindsight, Corley now talks about moments in his young life when the contrasting effects of being poor and being wealthy became as clear as day and night. Well, I'm grateful, of course, that we were able to keep going to, to such good schools, but uh, being wealthy was awesome. I mean, it was way, way better. Life was way easier. 
uh, and um, happier. You know, uh, when you were, we were poor, everything was a struggle. Every day, you know, was an, it was a new problem to solve. And, I, you know, I didn't have many problems to solve as a kid. But I, you know, I, I do remember uh, the, the nuns coming at night in, in a van, periodically dropping off food to our house. Uh, so that was, uh, I didn't understand it until later. And uh, when I got older and uh, realized how difficult it was for my father you know, to get us through all of that, really learned to appreciate, you know, how his, and, and you know, his, his personality changed. He was uh, a very involved father when we were wealthy and when we weren't he was never around he was constantly working just to survive so i lost that part you know that connection that was a shame experiencing both the worlds of wealthy and poverty call lists their most apparent differences and how they affected his perspective and the way he lived his adult years and he starts by sharing what he enjoyed most being financially well off as a child well the besides the country clubs and uh the country club that we remember member of and you know and that was uh just an awesome place for as, as long as it lasted uh the, the vacations we had just great vacations and we were all together i, re, I just remember wealth wealthy i associated wealth with being together and i associated poverty with being apart uh, we were all separated and we all had to work i mean i we started work at, at 12 you know and um i continued you know, I haven't stopped since since then. So uh, I, I think that part, there was uh, less recreation, less uh, fun, uh, less you couldn't do things with your friends. I remember uh, that they had an amusement park here in, uh, in the Northeast and it wasn't far. It was in New Jersey. So we would uh, my friends would all go there, you know, when they were 15, 16. I couldn't go. I, we had no money. So it was it was just uh, out of the question. And I remember feeling, you know, Sort of an outcast, an outlier, you know, because we were we were pretty much raised in an affluent community, even though we didn't have any money. My father somehow ma- managed to keep the house, but but it was it was constantly under foreclosure. I, I do remember real estate agents walking on the property, showing it off, and and uh, my aunt Peg letting the uh, the dog out <laughs> to chase them off the property. <laughs> I, I re- that that was fun. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was just not, it was nothing, not, I wouldn't say my life was, was, was the worst life because it wasn't, uh, we weren't homeless. So, so, but I do, you know, remember thinking, uh, I was an outlier where I lived and in my school and never, never, I've always felt that way. Always felt as an outlier. And even when I became a CPA, I felt like I was an outlier. I didn't feel like I fit in. Because a lot of the CPAs, they weren't sales oriented. They were, uh, you know, they were people that would, you know, could work twelve hours a day at a desk. I, that wasn't me. I needed to be around people. I liked being around people. So uh, uh, I didn't fall into the financial planning until later in my career, and that's when I realized that was the career for me. Because you're meeting so many people, and the CPA work is sort of behind the scenes stuff, you know. Corley has had a remarkable bond and teamwork with his siblings. He recounts what they all did to make things work for their family when life was messy. We were all uh, in it together, so to speak. So, um, you know, we were 
try it. We did as much as we could. You know, when if I made money, it went right into the household. Uh, you know, I didn't get to keep any of it. But um, I guess in a way I, I helped uh, with the kids because uh, that money that I made, they, you know, were able to buy food and groceries and stuff like that. Uh, and I even remember buying groceries with the money that I made. I would just, you know, finish shoveling or finish mowing a lawn and go down the street and pick up milk and bread and the things we didn't have in the house. Uh, and that, so I do remember that. That, that was common. Uh, I think um, I remember when I was in college and I finally, we have something called unions in New York City uh, where I worked the public school system. Uh, I, I was a custodian janitor and uh, I got on the, the union because I worked 20 hours a week and um, and I was able to get uh, braces for my brother Timmy uh, basically claimed him as a dependent and he got braces on so that if that kind of it, I guess in that sense it, you know we did we all were in it together that we we're all there to help each other I worked uh, you know every summer full-time and then uh, during the uh, week I worked 20 hours a week and the way they, they, they uh, scheduled it was to allow me to go to college full time. So I would leave school. I would try and schedule my classes. So they ended at about two and then I would start my janitor job around three thirty, finish up at about eight. And that was Monday through Thursday. So Friday nights wasn't a night that, we, you know, where a lot of my friends went out at, uh, Friday and Saturday night, they would go out. I was, that was the two nights that I had, um, the two day, nights and days that I had available to, to do my homework. So that was kind of my life. Coming up after the break, Corley reveals the insightful motivation that finally led him to become his own boss. Things really took off when I, I purchased a, a CPA firm that had been around for a long time. And, uh, the, the, and that, that, you know, was a big risk because that cost, that that was $1.2 million. The unquestionable proof he found in his research on the powerful role habits play in our lives. And what I found in looking at the summary sheet, which went page after page after page, I said, oh my gosh, this, I would say probably 60 to 70% of the data points were habits. He unveils the secrets of the wealthy on their path to success and gives a sneak peek on how you can practically apply them to your own journey today. Kind of took a page out of their book and I said, well, they're doing it. They became successful. If I do it, uh, you know, I'm, I'll become successful. So, and it's turned out that way. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sham and you're listening to Property Investory. with good work ethics and integrity, Corley relays the reason why he decided to become his own boss and start his own business. Once I, I got a job at a big accounting firm called Arthur Anderson and so the, the money back then wasn't very good. It was okay. Uh, so I was, um, I just, my, my wife and I just got married and so we were living in a condominium and uh, you know, that was kind of the start I, I suppose and and then I became an assistant tax director and then I started making a little bit more money and uh, things really took off when I, um, I purchased a, uh, a very uh, 
a CPA firm that had been around for a long time. And, uh, that, that, and that, that, you know, was a big risk because that cost that, that was $1.2 million. So I had to put up quite a bit and then I took a big note. It was a big risk, you know, but, um, I always, uh, I was, I was never felt, although I had a good work ethic and I was a hard worker, I never liked working for somebody. So I, I felt that I would probably do best working for myself and have, you know, managing people because I'm, I'm a, a mentor, I'm a teacher. And I think those kind of people should be managers and should be, you know, in charge of people because uh, most, <clears throat> most important thing in business is mentoring people so that they can uh, do their job to the best of their abilities. And that was something I really had a passion for. I just loved teaching and educating, and I had a lot of patience. So it worked out perfectly for me. And we have a great firm. We have a lot of people that are really good at what they do. And, um, you know, I don't have to do the, the grunt work like I used to. And it gave me more time so that I could write books, so I could go on to speaking engagements. And I've been everywhere. I've been to Vietnam, Australia, Canada, China. You know, I've been all over the place. The, the books have taken me all over the place to speak. So I wouldn't have been able to do that if I was working for somebody, right? Um, so being the boss gave me that, that afforded me that luxury. Remembering how his father struggled with debt after he lost his booming business, Corley shares how he and his siblings did their best to rise to the occasion. It was a time in his life when one of the big realizations about being poor hit him. We all chipped in. Um, my father recovered, uh, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't until the later part of his life when um, his money started running out that we had to step up to the plate. But uh, that that only lasted for about ten years, I would say, maybe maybe fifteen years where we we had to help support him. But we got him. Um, into a uh, an assist sort of an assisted living facility for older people. My he and my wife, my mom, and um, and then then they could afford. They didn't have financial problems after that, so it was uh, it was difficult. Uh, I, I remember when we uh, had to tell my father that he had to sell his home uh, because we couldn't. All of the brothers got together and said we we just can't afford to raise our family and afford you know, to pay for everything, your, your home. So uh, he ended up selling and that, that it, it all worked out in the end. Yeah, 15 years wasn't a short period of time though, Tom. <laughs> yeah, you get used to it though. Yeah, that's true. It's a point, Tyrone, that I think is important. Poor people, one of the things that is an albatross around their neck is if you're a poor person earning an income, you become the family's banker. And so you can never get behind. You're always forever behind the eight ball. You're constantly. Uh, I, mean, I remember saving five, six, seven thousand dollars only to see it go out the door for property taxes for my father. So I, I think it, poor people have to struggle with that. It's a real burden. I think it's the, the hardest thing if you're really an up and comer and you're success minded and and but you're poor, and uh, yeah, you know the people around you, your family, are going to hit you up for money. If you're, if you're moderately successful and that's what happened to me. Diving deep into his journey of finally writing his first book, Corley recounts how it all started and how he eventually became something akin to a brain expert. When I was uh, doing my research, my study, uh, I didn't go into it, Tyrone, thinking I'm going to do a habit study. 
you know, study on the habits between the rich and the poor. I didn't even, I, I, my understanding of habits was what anyone's understanding of habits was back then. So when I finished my research, I asked 144 questions to each person. And uh, there were uh, 366, I think, in my study, three, maybe 361, I think. And uh, so that's like 54,000 questions. And I gathered a lot of data. Uh, and then when I, I started breaking the data up between rich and poor and self-made millionaire, because some of the rich people had inherited their wealth. So I wanted to really understand the dynamics between those three groups. Uh, and what I found in looking at the summary sheet, which went page after page after page, I said, oh, my gosh, this, uh, I would say probably 60 to 70 percent of the data points were habits, were daily habits, things that repetitive behaviors. And so that took me down a rabbit hole where I had to become somewhat of an expert on the neurology of habits. So I studied, I, I must have read about 20 books on the brain, uh, and these were not easy books to read, but I became sort of a brain expert. Uh, I understood the physiology behind habits, uh, which is important because when you, whenever somebody is talking about some expert out there is talking about how to change your habits. If they're not, if they're not addressing it from a, a physiological standpoint, then the, the, they're wasting your time because the physiology behind habits is what makes creating a habit possible. Uh, and so in my book, Change Your Habits, Change Your Life, I talk about the physiology of habit change, uh, the, the neurology behind habit change. And I think uh, what was interesting is uh, when China, I got approached by a, a big, huge publisher, I think the biggest publisher in China, they they liked my research, they liked my books, and uh, they combined rich habits and change your habits, change your life. And, and their thinking was was in alignment with mine. I, I always thought those two books belonged together. And uh, we talked about it, and they, they read both books, and they said, yeah, you're right, they belong together. One tells you about, the rich habits tells you about the habits, the keystone habits that you need to incorporate into your life. And change your habits, change your life teaches you how to actually incorporate habits, how to how to forge a habit and how to get rid of an old bad habit. Notably, Corley gives insight on the heart-wrenching encounter that thrusted him into all this research in the first place at a time when he was already running a successful CPA business and managing people. What happened was almost immediately after I took over the helm, as president of my CPA firm, and I was approached by uh, one of our business clients who had been with us for probably 30 years. His father was uh, his fa his business was his father's business, and he took it over. And anyway, he he uh, we met one night in 2004, and he, um, he his bank had converted his line of credit to a term loan. So now he didn't have access to any more capital and he couldn't come up with enough money to make payroll for that Friday. So the guy came to my office. He was hoping that I could help him find a banker, you know, that week, which is, was impossible. Uh, anyway, he didn't know me. He didn't know what, you know, and I told him this, it's not going to happen. And he broke down and started crying. And he said, you know, what, what are your successful clients doing that I'm not doing? What is it? What is, why am I, you know, struggling? Uh, and I, so I did some research, initial research on that. I was trying to answer his question because he was so emotional about it. It, it 
it stirred me emotionally. So uh, I spent about three to six months trying to find research out there that would explain the difference between, you know, rich and poor people. Why are rich people rich? Why are poor people poor? And the, the, the thing that was the, the best resource, but it, it, it was a, it wasn't it was so inadequate that I had to do my own research. But the, the book that was the best resource at the time was um, The Millionaire Next Door. Oh, yes. I love that book. Yeah. I read that book. And, and then there was another book he came out with. I read that book and I, I studied that book. And, and I said, you know, this doesn't answer the question of what this, th those books were talking about these wealthy people when they were wealthy. It didn't really explain how they got wealthy or what they did every single day. Dissatisfied with what he discovered in the available books on the subject, Corley finally expanded his research thus leading him to the findings that he himself would soon write about in his own books. And as they say, the rest is history. I wanted to be that fly on the wall. I wanted to know what, is the, what do the rich people do with their time? What do the poor people do with their time? Because I felt if I could understand how they utilize their time, then I would be able to explain to people, hey, this is what rich people do on a daily basis. And this is what poor people do on a daily basis. Do this and don't do that. And so uh, I, um, I guess that's, that's those, the two questions I was trying to answer with my research is why are some people rich or poor, number one? Number two, what do rich people and poor people do every day? And uh, my Rich Habits research answered that question because I had so many, hundred, as I mentioned, 144 questions and covered almost every activity, every part of the day. And I started learning things about how the rich people utilize their time. For example, one of the things that was like, a, I guess you'd call it an aha moment for me is when I came up with the question, uh, which became a profound question. I asked the rich people what they did with their time after they finished their so-called work day. And so I was, you know, under the assumption they went home, ate dinner and, and you know, that, that was it, right? Uh, but the answers I got almost... 100% of the time, these wealthy people, at, at least two to three days a week, were not home. They were uh, on board of directors of, of other companies. They were on board of directors of nonprofits. They were, um, some of them were going to school at night to learn something. Some of them were practicing a skill that they thought that could help in their business. Some of them were uh, coaching sports teams. Some of them were writing some of them were doing speaking engagements there was just a just a potpourri of things that they did with their time and so that was fine and then when i asked the same question to the poor people they said oh you know i'm i'm so tired from uh from my job that i come home i'll have a beer or some wine i'll eat and then i'll uh, lay down on the couch for like an hour and then i'll watch some tv and and then I'll go to bed and do the same thing all over again. And their excuse was, you know, I work so hard. I work so hard. That's why I need to rest. And I said, well, you know, the rich people work harder than you. Uh, they're busier than you. And they still have time two to three days a week to go out during the week to build relationships with other success-minded people, with, you know, the people on the board of directors of nonprofits. They're mostly successful people. So now you're building relationships with like-minded people and and those relationships open doors and create opportunities for you to make more money uh and when you do it you know 
maybe right, preparing for a speaking engagement because you do that on the side. And I think about 18% of them did. Um, that takes time. And then when you, of course, you know, you, you do the speaking engagement, you meet, you know, 50, 100, 200. I, I had one speaking gig in Vietnam, it was 3,000 people. I mean, imagine meeting 3,000 people. And I met a lot of them. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, they did these things that, that put them in front of people and, and mostly in front of important people or, or people that, that could help them uh, in some way. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, they were developing relationships, building their brand, showcasing their skills, uh, you know, and they weren't doing it just uh, nine to five, you know, they were doing it after work. Contrasting the habits of the rich and the poor, Corley further explains the route he chose when he interviewed those two groups of people. What he discovered spoke volumes about the time habits of the wealthy. I asked them questions about what they did with their time in the morning, what they did during the day, and what they did at night. And I also asked them what they did with their time on the weekends. Uh, and and then, you know, the questions were, were configured in such a way that uh, it, it gave me answers without asking them, what do you do with your time? You, you know, like, uh, do you exercise? Yeah, well, when do you exercise? Oh, I exercise between, you know, six in the morning and seven in the morning. Uh, you know, what do, do you um, do you have any outside activities? Yeah, I'm on the board of directors. Uh, we have meetings once a week. Uh, 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 you know, I, I, I coach, uh, you know, two, two sports teams and I have, uh, you know, if, you know, we have practice and then, of course, we have, uh, we meet with the parents periodically and, and they, they had all of these things. And I said, well, that's consuming time. So the only thing I needed to know is when you were doing it. And uh, a lot of them did it at night. A lot, you know, the weekends, I think, were mostly leisure, but I, there, was, uh, there, there was a good percentage, probably over 50% of them were engaged in some pr productive activity. Some of them worked uh, Saturdays. Not the whole weekend, but Saturdays, and uh, so, you know, some of them were were constantly on, so to speak. And some of them turned the turned the switch off uh, on the weekends. But I would say more than fifty percent of them were constantly on, constantly going, constantly doing things that would help them to grow as individuals, grow the relationships, uh, maybe help them develop skills. Like my writing, uh, I, one of the, not one, but many of the wealthy people got up early in the morning. So I started getting up early in the morning, even though I'm not an early bird, but now I am. Uh, and that's where I did all my writing and my research in the mornings and at night. So I took, I kind of took a page out of their book and I said, well, they're doing it. They became successful. If I do it, uh, you know, I'm, I'll become successful. So, and it's turned out that way. In the next episode of Property Investory, Tom Corley explains how the physiological and neurological aspects of the brain impact the way we form habits. The physiology, the way the brain works is uh, if, if you were to jump in and say, I'm going to forge this 60 minute a day habit, 
in about two weeks, you'll lose that war with the brain. What he deems is the best and the worst kinds of property investments. I learned that from from my clients that uh, the best type of investment, real estate, real estate investment is that which you control. He sheds a light on why having a clear vision for yourself can be a powerful ally and weapon in your ongoing expedition for success. So the difference between point A and point B are dreams and goals. So you, you have to have that clarity of vision, the, that end in mind, in order for those dreams and those goals to manifest themselves. And that's next time on Property Investory.